It is so wonderful to stand before you today and to rejoice in the Lord and His Word. You are such an incredible congregation. Time and time again, you prove that through your deeds and your words and your encouragement. I've just been once again amazed through the course of this year how generous you are, how you've been so supportive of our youth and our children and our mission work and our church, and I'm so thankful for your generosity and the kindness of things that you send to us as a staff with cards and letters and emails and text messages. You have no idea what those mean to us and what a joy it is when you encourage us. So I just want to tell you, you're great, and thank you for the way that God is being magnified and glorified by your actions and your attitudes and your service and your behavior. I want you to join me in Matthew chapter 5. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where it was really difficult for you to cope in that environment and to be different. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you just got so cold from the environment that you really began to be miserable in that environment? You just Maybe you were in a place where you were out in the weather and it just got really cold and the environment that was around you really had an impact on you and started not just uh, being an, an inconvenience, but it started being maybe a danger to you. I remember a time or two have gotten so cold that I uncontrollably had my teeth chattering and shivered. Have you ever been that cold? That is that is not fun. I've also been in hot environments where it was like I am overheated and I am going to have to do something to try to cool off. You're fanning and you're doing things like that, trying to um, adjust. Our environment has an impact on us. And it has an impact on us in profound ways. And when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to a group of people whose environment has a profound impact on them. It's like being in a place that's so cold it actually begins to make you cold. I don't know if you know medically why your teeth chatter and your body shivers, but it's actually your body's way of turning on your adrenaline, which is part of your internal heating system, so that your body will begin to burn more calories and produce heat on the inside of itself to cope with what's outside. And if you've ever been outside when it's really hot, your body starts to quote, cope by sweating and trying to cool you off. So there's an internal structure that tries to cope with what's going on externally. Well, that's what's happening in Matthew 5. We come to this last section of the six comparisons that Jesus makes. Those six comparisons are found in verses 21 through 48. And in those comparisons, what Jesus does is he takes the prevailing culture of his day. He takes the prevailing attitudes of his day, the prevailing actions and heart of that day, and how they interpreted things, and he holds them up and says, God's way is in contrast to the prevailing culture of the day. God wants to do something inside you that keeps what is outside you from shaping and forming and making you into something that God does not intend. Now, I want you to look at how Jesus lays this out because it's important in seeing how he concludes it. Look in verse 20 for just a moment of chapter 5. 
Jesus introduces these six comparisons with a phrase. Let's read it in verse 24. I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses... I want you to mark the word surpasses because he's introducing the six and he's going to conclude the six with the same word. So jump down to verse 48, excuse me, 47, and highlight the word do more or do more than. That is the same word in the New Testament language. It means to be superlative to, to excel beyond, to rise above, to surpass the expectation. So Jesus sandwiches these six things between two uses of the same word that are very important. Now he does something else very interesting here. In the first introduction of that word in verse 20, he ties that word to the religious people of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes, politics and religion. And he ties the word surpass to these two groups, the religious people of his day. Now, in the last use of the word, down in verse 47, he ties it to another two groups of people. He ties it to the two words that most characterized the irreligious people of his day. Look in verse 47. 46 introduces it, 47 completes it. For if you love those, verse 46, who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers. Now the tax gatherers were the most hated class of Jewish people. They were regarded in their day as criminals. They did not work for a salary. They worked on commission. Now, I don't know if you've ever worked in a situation where you worked on commission, but if you work on commission, the more you bring in, the more you make. And so the tax gatherers, the tax collectors working for the Romans on commission to gather taxes from the Jews would trump up excessively what they were charging in order that their cut, their take, their commission would be even more. And they often became very wealthy. They were considered to be the legal thieves of their day. And these guys were scoundrels. And so when Jesus drops that word, he is typifying irreligious And then he drops the other word in verse 47. He uses the word Gentiles. That means the pagan unbelievers who were part of the Roman system of worship, the Greek system of worship that paid tribute to all of these thousands of deities, so-called, and lived very pagan, sinful, immoral lives along with it. And so Jesus is going to make a little sandwich for us bottom slice of bread, he starts the teaching and says, your righteousness should surpass that of the typically religious people, scribes, Pharisees. They were the ones that you would use to characterize the most religious people in the world. Then he 
puts in all of the ingredients of his sandwich, and then he tops it off with another little piece of bread that says this. He says, and your activity and behavior ought definitely be above and surpass the two most irreligious groups on earth. So that there was an environment that these new believers were living in that was going to so be part of the culture that the religious and the irreligious would actually be living the same way just from different perspectives. The religious would be living in a godless way, covering their godlessness with religion. The irreligious would simply be busy self-gratifying, no care for religion at all, but both of them would be acting the same way from their heart. And they would be acting out the things that these six address. And so Jesus steps in and says, you know what? You guys need to be radically different. In verse 21, he tells us, you need to be so radically different that you are the most reconcilable people on the earth. No hatred, always conciliatory. He tells us further in verse 27 that there should be a sexual purity among you that is not found in the religious or the irreligious. The heart of the religious was perverted. The acts of the irreligious were perverted. They both had the same problem. This group was to be different. He says in verse 31, you would excel in your marriage. You're going to be different from the world, the religious who justify their forsaking their marriage with all kinds of religious double talk, and the irreligious who just don't bother, they just move on. Then he tells us in verse 33 that we should be the most truthful people on earth, the religious coding their lies with religious talk, the irreligious just lying blatantly. And then in verse 38, he tells us we should be an incredibly conciliatory group, never taking revenge at all, but going above and beyond whatever is asked of us to demonstrate the nature of God. And so those were the five ways we've already talked about that something inside these people was going to make them different from the surrounding culture. The religious who sinned, with religious covering, the irreligious who sinned with no covering, and that these people were going to be different. They were called followers of Jesus. And so when we get into verse 43, we get into Jesus' final statements on this section of the Sermon on the Mount, and I've broken it down into five simple words I want us to be able to take with us and take home. So let's start. Number one, let's talk about the culture. Look in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now what's interesting is that this is a misquote. There's no place in the Bible they were told by God as a command to hate their enemies. In fact, they were told different in the book of Leviticus, and we'll flesh that out in just a moment. But what's happening is religious people were simply self-justifying their hatred for other people by religion, by quoting mis 
misquoted Bible verses. And so they had manipulated God's Word and made it a cultural norm. It's kind of like when I hear people say, God helps those who help themselves. That's in the Bible. I would love for you to show that to me. In fact, the Bible is different than that. The Bible says, God helps the helpless. And so, we have cultural norms of statements we make that we say come from the Bible but have no root in it and become very popular sayings. In fact, when Laurel and Laney were doing their schooling in homeschool, in one of the classrooms that was on video, that verse was behind the teacher. God helps those that help themselves. I had to explain to them that that's really not in the Bible. The Bible says that we are destitute and weak and that God helps the helpless. While we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, this cultural norm was something tossed about among the religious and the irreligious that their deities approved, you know, love your own. But you can pretty much hate on everybody else. And especially if they're at enmity with you or they're your enemies or if they've ever done you any wrong, you can hate them. It's okay. The Bible says so. I often scratch my head when people quote things that are supposed to be the Bible to me. And I know that they're not. And I always go, how do you navigate that? Can I just say plainly, that ain't in the Bible? Or that may be a little too offensive. How about, show me. (laughs) That'll help. Uh, Just get your Bible and show me. Well, I can't find it. So here was a cultural norm spreading around. It was among the religious. It was among the irreligious. The religious used it to justify their religious behavior. I'm so righteous, I hate sinners. The Gentiles used it as just, that's the way life is. You know, what comes natural to me is I love the people who love me. And I hate those that don't. And that's just how it is. So this environment was creating an incredible tension for these disciples to live in a way that was different from their culture. The culture was freezing them and they were shivering in it. The culture was baking them and they were sweating in it because they knew something is wrong with our culture. The religious have it wrong. The irreligious have it wrong. What are we going to do with this? Jesus says, first, your culture is telling you something that God did not say. We have to be careful. Did did you know, back about the time I was born, 62, I've been around a while, um, when I was born, the most quoted Bible verse was John 3.16. And the most memorized Bible verse was John 3.16. Now, today, the most quoted Bible verse and the most memorized Bible verse is judge not. And it's almost always out of context. And so here, our culture is having an impact on us. It's trying to shape us. Religious people and irreligious people are trying to move us to be a certain way that pleases them and their environment. And they want us to adapt. They want to freeze us. They want to bake us so that we conform to the temperature of our surroundings. And Jesus steps in and says, no. You're going to surpass the religious, verse 20. You're going to surpass the irreligious, verses 46 and 47. And there's a way you're going to do that. So he introduces the idea that the culture says this. 
Let's go further. The next word I wanted to give you was the clarification. Number two, the clarification. Here's what Jesus does. He introduces what the culture has to say. The culture says it's okay to hate. No, it's okay to hate, especially hating on your enemies because they probably deserve it. So it's okay. And so the culture is trying to condition you to a certain way of thinking. It's working hard to do that. Jesus steps in and says, time out, I want to make a clarification. Here's actually what God said. Here's what he demands. And he gives it to us. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Luke adds one phrase. We'll add here, do good to those who spitefully use you. And so Jesus steps in and he reminds them what Leviticus 19 actually said, the verse that they started quoting back in verse 43. They started quoting, love your neighbor. But they fail to see that God made it very clear to love your enemy. And then he makes the clarification very clear. He says, and what's interesting is he uses a set of verbs that have a certain timing in their, in their sense that's very provocative to us. Here's how you could read it. But I say to you, love your enemies, praying for them while they are persecuting you. Doing good to them while they are spitefully using you. Dr. Quarles, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says that the verbs that are used here, praying, doing good, loving, are given as a response to a continuous nature of action. In other words, while the persecution keeps on going, you keep on loving. You keep on praying. While they are spitefully using you, you keep on doing good for the duration of the persecution and the duration of the spiteful use. The way that Jesus puts it in the language of the New Testament is crystal clear to everyone for whom that language was their first language. He meant that the minute it starts, you respond. You don't wait on bitterness to build up. You don't wait on forgiveness to come. You don't wait on situation to change. You actually, at the initiation of the persecution, at the initiation of being enemies, at the initiation of the spiteful use, you, your first and final response is to pray and to do good. He doesn't give a time limit on it. He doesn't give an until. He doesn't give a stopping place. He says, 
you go on. And so when Jesus steps in and makes a clarification, he not only makes clear what our response is, he makes clear how that response initiates and how that response continues. That means that when it starts, your first fleshly reaction is to want to bow up, get mad, all those things. Somebody's mistreating, somebody's spitefully using, somebody's persecuting, somebody's making it difficult for you. And your first fleshly reaction is just like the Gentiles, or just like the religious, you're going to look for some Bible verse that will justify you hating on that person and doing something God would not like. And so you'll either dress it up in religion, or you'll just let it be raw and irreligious, but your fleshly response will be to hate. And Jesus says, "Uh -uh." your immediate response that is commanded by God through Christ is this, When the persecution starts, prayer starts. When the spiteful use starts, the good deeds start. Why? Because the love was there all the time. I love my enemies. I pray my enemies. I do good to my enemies. And so Jesus makes it clear Tim Keller says, don't wait on a loving feeling to help you love your enemy. Choose to willfully do loving acts immediately. Let God handle the feelings. Unfortunately, we're kind of like the singing group from the 60s and 70s. We want to sing, you've lost that loving feeling. And justify our behavior because of how we feel about somebody. I don't feel like loving him. I don't feel like loving her. I don't feel like loving them. God is not interested in your feelings as a justification for your behavior. God is stepping in and commanding that there is a divine power in you, just like when it gets real cold and your teeth start to chatter, and your body starts to shake, and the adrenaline kicks in, and it actually burns a fuel in there that helps warm your body and sustain you in cold times. God has something more powerful than adrenaline. God has placed inside you the power that created the universe, His Holy Spirit. And that power is capable of any good thing. And He commands what He empowers. Now, something comes with this, and that's what I was leading to, number three. We've seen the culture that was trying to shape them through religion and irreligion to be haters of enemies and justify whether through fleshly desire or religious wrappings. We've seen the clarification that Jesus has said, "Mm -mm. culture around you doesn't shape you, you, you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, while they persecute you, when they persecute you, as they persecute you. Do good to those who spitefully use you, as they spitefully use you, when they spitefully use you, as you're being used. Do good. Now he gives the cause. Number three. It's interesting. Dr. Quarles... highly recommend his commentary on this because it helped me kind of weed out some thoughts 
that I'd previously had through some very meticulous research he did. When you get down to the next verse, I want you to pick up in verse 45. It says, in order that, some translations read, so that. Now, the problem is, is if we read this wrong in English, here's what happens. We think, if I will love my enemies, then I can become a child of God. If I will choose to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute you, uh, okay, if I'll do that, God will let me in heaven, God will save me because I do these things. And so we read in order that as maybe something that's a process by which if I do these things, God might adopt me. That's not how it reads in the New Testament. But it translates out in such a way that it's hard for us to say. Here's what Dr. Quarles said. He says that the phrase, so that, in order that, whichever way your translation reads, so that, or in order that, in verse 45, exposes the ground or the cause of something. Now, stay with me. It exposes the ground or the cause of something. And he retranslates it and says, because that you are the sons of your Father. He's not talking about doing a deed that leads to God adopting me. Uh -uh. He's saying, because God has adopted me, I'm doing these deeds. In other words, a change has already come. God has brought the new birth to me. I have a regenerate heart. I've been born again. And because I've been born again, my Father's Spirit, my Father's Son inhabits me. Jesus is in my heart and my soul. The Spirit is in my heart and my soul, my body. I have the power of God in me. And so what I have now is I have a power in me that is not dependent on my environment. If I'm freezing... My, de- my environment is trying to freeze me into a frozen convert of culture to be just like my surroundings. God has put a holy heater in my heart, powered by the Holy Spirit, that keeps me different from the culture around me and emanates such a heat that I can bring other people into my area. And just like I give them light, I give them heat. I thaw them out with the good news of Jesus by my behavior. I have an impact. And so... When we see this phrase, he's not saying so that you can get to be a Christian, so that you can be adopted by God. He's saying because that you have been adopted by God, this is going to be your behavior. In other words, your behavior is going to distinguish whether or not you are actually a child of God. You will show yourself and who your father is by how you act. He said, Pastor Paul, where, where does the Bible flesh that out? I was hoping you would ask that. John 8, just a minute. Join me there. We're just going to make a quick foray into John because Jesus says it in such plain words here that it's one of those inescapable moments in the Bible where you go, whoa, I wish he hadn't put it quite that plain because it's convicting me and scaring me a little bit. 
Come to chapter 8 of John. Look with me in verse 39, and I think this will be helpful to us. 39. He's having a conversation with the Jews, and they said this. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Okay, now stop there. They're claiming fatherhood from Abraham, and Jesus is saying, you ain't acting like Abraham. And they're saying, oh, no, we're, we're Abraham's children. So Jesus says, you're trying to kill me. Abraham didn't do that, wouldn't do that. So look in verse 41. He says, you are doing the deeds of your father. And immediately they jump on him and they say, we weren't born of fornication. That's a reference back to this thing called the virgin birth. The stories had gotten around about Joseph and Mary and the pregnancy, and so they're trying to accuse Jesus of being an illegitimate child. We're not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. Now follow Jesus' reasoning. If God were your Father, He would do something in your heart that would bring you to love Jesus. You hate Jesus, so obviously God is not your Father. Let's see what he says about it. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he has sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Wow. That's what you call cut and dry. Everybody who's here right now has one or two spiritual daddies. Everybody in this room, you've got one of two spiritual daddies. There's not any other alternatives. You're either operating by the father of lies, Satan, and he is begetting his way in you. Or you are operating by the father of light who is begetting in you His way. Jesus does not leave room for ambivalence about God. And Jesus doesn't leave room for us to excuse hateful behavior with religious double talk. Jesus reveals the source from which our behaviors come. He says, your behaviors are coming from a begetter that you are participating with in your heart. And so when we come back to Matthew chapter 5, let's see how Jesus finishes it up. He says, okay, you got it, culture around you trying to change you and make you like it is. Let me clarify that the culture doesn't have it right. I'm calling you to something supernatural and different. I'm calling you not to be like the religious fakes and like the irreligious people. I'm saying love your enemies. And while they are persecuting you, pray for them lovingly. While they're doing bad to you, do good to them lovingly because you are the children of God. That's why. Because you are the children. Why? Because you are the children of God. 
That's why. Not because this is going to guarantee to lead them to Jesus. Not because this is going to guarantee to fix the world. Because you are the child of your Father. That's the cause for which you do it. It causes something in you. And so, now Jesus just drops on them a clear contrast. Number four, the contrast. Here we go. For He causes... This is what God's like. And so you're supposed to be like this. What's He like? Well, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. Do you know that sunsets are enjoyed by unbelievers? Go to any photography site. You have to be careful what photography sites you go to, but go to any photography site, put your filter on, and, and watch and watch how unbelievers everywhere go, Whoa! Look at that sunset! Look at that sunrise! Isn't it beautiful? You know what God does? It does not matter what you think of Him. He blesses you with that glory every day. Because He's good. That's what he's like. He's not going, oh, you're such a sinner, I'm not going to let you see this today. No. Hateful people get up in the morning and see the glory, and even hateful people go, wow, take a picture and put it on the internet. It's awesome. And then he sends rain on them. Their crops grow. And they drink. And they wash their car in the rain. And say, boy, this is beautiful. And they grow their grass with the rain. And they plant their flowers with the rain. And they hate God with every breath. And God just lavishes good on them. Because God loves His enemies. God loved you when you were still His enemy. When you were at enmity with Him in your sin, declaring your own way and acting like you were your own little God, God still loved you. And so there's this glorious picture. What is God like? He's just good. So that goodness comes up and wells up in us out of joy for our salvation. And we lavish the sun and the rain, the glory and the help on unbelievers and enemies. We are the refreshing rain to the thirsty soul of an enemy. And we are the glorious beauty of a sunrise to the seeker. And we bring that to them. And we love them. Because we want to be like our dad. Because our dad's God. And so that's how we close. He says... In verse 46, for, for if you just love the people that love you, what reward have you? You know what he's talking about. He's talking about there's a day of judgment that every one of us are going to be recompensed according to our deeds. And that those of us who have lovingly prayed while being persecuted, those of us who have lovingly done good while being done dirty, and we've suffered, you've suffered, under the persecution, under the abuse, under the misuse. You've suffered, but you loved anyway. Listen carefully. There is a day that the God of heaven is going to himself kneel down and according to the book of the Revelation, wipe away every tear from your eye. And he is going to give you a holy embrace through his son Jesus that will make you say it was worth it all. 
And so God, in his love, gives you this calling, number five. You see the contrast? Don't be like the tax gatherers. They love the people that love them. There's nothing to that. Anybody can do that. And, and tax collectors and Gentiles alike. You don't need God to do what is natural. You need God to do what is supernatural. So number five, the calling. Verse 48, people love to try to wrestle their way around this. I mean, I just we do spiritual gymnastics here. Make Mary Lou Retton look like she was infirm. Jesus is telling us that there's this relationship that drives us to want something. There's this relationship that drives us to a kind of imitation, to a kind of falling, to a kind of following, to a kind of copying. When we see the perfection of God, we lay eyes on it. And we say, I want to be like him. That's what I want. We're not talking about perfectionism in religion. Jesus has already dealt with that. The Pharisees thought they had it. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about a relationship so close that because of your love and because of your proximity, when you hang out with God, you want to be perfect like God is. You just have this urge. You say, Bart, that's, that's so unreasonable. But let me ask you if, you, if you allowed your children to think like you think about God, about you, okay, here, here's the thing. When God calls us to perfection, every one of us immediately says, well, that's impossible, that's impossible. Well, to a degree, I agree with that. Nobody on this side of earth is going to become perfect. I, I mean, this side of heaven is going to become perfect. I, I agree with that. But does that mean you should never try what if your child came to you and you're trying to teach them to tie shoes and they say, well, I can never tie it like you tie, so I'm not going to try. You're going to have to get some Velcro for them. You're just going to have to Velcro their shoes on them because they're refusing to learn. What if they said, look, here's the deal. You, I can never wash myself the way that you wash me. Can't you see you washing your son or your daughter on their honeymoon? That's awkward. That's really awkward. Excuse me, let me tidy you up so you can meet your, your, your new spouse. Uh, there's a problem there. What if, what if our child said, well, I can never dress myself the way you dress me. You just let them be naked? Or I can see you when they're 16 going, okay, pull your bitches up. Come on, come on, Johnny. We, we will take a reasoning that we know is unreasonable and we'll try to apply it because it justifies us being spiritually lazy and justifying our sin. In other words, you know what it is? It's Pharisee religious double talk. Nobody's perfect. You're right. But the God who made you through his son Jesus has looked you in the eye through his word and said, but you better be. He doesn't say that's the qualification for getting into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, if you'll get to be perfect, I'll let you in heaven. No, he's not setting the standard that you can't meet so that you can't get into heaven. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, here's the deal. If you love God, you'll do like every son does who admires his dad. You'll want to be like him. 
Years ago, there was this great commercial. In fact, I'll tell you how it had an impact on my personal life. There was this great commercial. It came out in the 60s. And uh, it was called Like Father, Like Son. Some of you have been around long enough to remember this commercial. It starts off and there's a dad and a son. Dad's up on a stepladder and he's painting and right under and the son's painting. And then they go to the next frame and the dad's riding a bike and the son's riding a bike. And it goes to the next frame, the dad's skipping a stone, and the son's skipping a stone. And you're going along with the commercial going, oh, that's great, that's great. The last frame, this was actually a public service announcement, the last frame is the dad, he pulls out a pack of cigarettes and he taps them down. You know how you tamp your cigarettes down? No, I hope you don't know that. Tamp your cigarettes down, and then you take them out, and the the dad lights up a cigarette and he sets the pack down, and the little kid, he's about six, he just picks up the cigarette, does the same thing, and starts to get a cigarette out. And then it says, like father, like son. Now, what that commercial was doing was doing what this text is doing. It was saying, it is natural if a son loves his father, if a daughter loves her father, it is natural to want to emulate. Here's the thing about God that he wants us to emulate. He is the height of moral perfection. And He wants you to strive for that holy perfection, not as a religious act, but as an admiration and a love and an imitation. He's calling you. Old Testament, He said it this way. Be holy, for I am holy. New Testament, He says it this way. Be perfect, for I am perfect. What he's doing is he's asking you to do this. Quit excusing your behavior. That's all he's doing. He's just saying quit. Quit justifying your behavior with the idea, nobody's perfect. I'm not going to try. Well, what happens is, do you know what? We've got a lot of people who are spiritual babies who we're probably having to dress to get out in public because they've bought into the idea, since I can't be perfect and do it just like God, might as well not try. And Jesus says, no. No. Your Father deserves better. Your Father deserves you right now to say this. I want to be just like my dad. That's what I want. Would you bow with me? The first step to you being just like your dad is to come to him and let him be your dad. You see, it's possible you're here today and what Jesus was saying in John was actually addressed to you because you're doing the deeds of your father and your father's the devil. That you've been spiritually begotten with sin and that you've just gone right along with that and you've said, yeah, I'll go with that. And you're living out a life right now and your spiritual father is the devil and and you're in bad shape. And you might be just like the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to that day. You might be cloaking it in a lot of religion. You might be here today. You got church membership. You got activity. You got, you know, you're busy about church. And you might be that. Or you just might be like the Gentiles. And you're just here today. And you've just been living it up outside, obvious, and no regard for God. But you know also that your dad's not God. And so here, here's, it's so simple. He wants to save you and make you his child. And how? Well, first is for you to understand that you're not his child. Your sin has separated from you. 
uh, him from you, you from him. And, and, and the result is you're at a distance from him, and you can't get across that distance without divine intervention. And that divine intervention is Jesus. Jesus came to cover the gap between you and God. He came first and just did this one thing. He lived like his father wanted. He did the perfect example. He was perfect like his father. So he did. He did that for you. He took your place. He's already achieved that task. So the requirement for you to get to God is not for you to be perfect. No, no. The requirement for you to get to God is to believe that Jesus was perfect and that the second thing he did in bridging the gap was he died for your imperfection, your lack of perfection, your sin, that which separated you. And he did so in such a way to pay it off in full, your debt, and to give you his perfection as a gift. And so if you today would repent of sin and trust Jesus as your Savior, and call on him today, he will save you. He wants to save you. He desires to save you. And so I'm asking you now, change your dad and be adopted by God. Trust Jesus. So Pastor Bart, I want to do it right now. How do I do it? Well, pray with me. God, I know I am not your child and my behaviors proved it whether it was in church hiding through religion or out of church through irreligion, I've proven that you're not my dad. But I've heard this good message of salvation, that you love me and want me to be your child. And so I, I do that one thing that's necessary. I trust Jesus. I repent and I trust Jesus. Save me. you've done that today, here's what God does. He saves you. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's good and He wants to save you. So when you come to Him and you repent and you believe, He saves you. That's great. And so He wants you to let everybody know now that you're His child. That's what baptism is. It's kind of an adoption service, kind of finalizing the paperwork for what's already happened. So I want to invite you. Some of you are here today, and you are a Christian and you know it, but somehow this self-justifying religious thing has gotten into your heart, and you've been kind of messing up on this deal. And you've got some hate here for somebody, some unforgiveness here for somebody, and you've hardened up, and God has spoken to you today, and you need to come and either pray with one of our staff or at the altar or at your seat. You need to say, God, I don't want that anymore. Change me. I want to be just like my dad. Make me, make me like my dad. Help me. I love the prayers of help. Sometimes that's the best prayer you can pray is just simply say, help! God loves that. It's what Peter did when he was sinking, walking on the water. <laughs> Lord, save me! <laughs> just a quick prayer. How about that today? You just calling out to God and saying, Lord, I know I'm your child, but I'm not acting like it. And the fruits are scaring me. I want to be like my father. So I want to encourage you to come today and set that right. Would you stand as God moves your heart? Would you?